BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And welcome to the Water Cooler, everybody. Thanks for joining us. I'm David Brody. It's Thursday, April 22nd, 2021. And let me start with this. Happy Earth Day, everybody. In honor of Earth Day, Miss Smiley Face uh, and noted environmentalist activist uh, Greta Thunberg uh, will be watching the water cooler show. There she is from Sweden. However, I'm not sure, by the way, uh, that the emissions spewing from this show will be anything to her liking. But Greta, you're going to like this news. Today at a virtual climate change summit of 40 world leaders, President Biden says his goal is to cut U.S. fossil fuel emissions up to 52 percent by 2030. Clean energy, folks. Greta, of course, now standing and applauding. Biden looking to phase out oil and gas rigs, coal mines, etc. More in a moment. Also, D.C. statehood legislation. Democrats continue their march to a liberal utopia. The House passes the bill, but not after a racially charged tense moment on the House floor. We will explain. And speaking of race, now that Derek Chauvin has been found guilty, liberals now concentrated even more on two words, systemic racism. But is it a real thing or more liberal mumbo jumbo? We're going to delve into the issue. And we'll discuss the evangelicals, or as Trump likes to call them, the evangelicals. They love me. They may love Trump, but they aren't big fans of taking the COVID vaccine. What's up with that? We will discuss. But first, the climate summit. I know Greta was wondering what happened to that story. It's back, Greta. Uh, Joe Biden came out today with this big clean energy goal. Here's more of that. Along our highways, I see engi the engineers and the construction workers building new carbon capture and green hydrogen plants to forge cleaner steel and cement and produce clean power. I see farmers deploying cutting-edge tools to make soil of our, of our heartland the next frontier in carbon innovation. By maintaining those investments and putting these people to work, the United States sets out on the road to cut greenhouse gases in half, in half by the end of this decade. That's where we're headed as a nation. And that's what we can do if we take action to build an economy that's not only more prosperous, but healthier, fairer, and cleaner for the entire planet. You know, these steps will set America on a path of net zero emissions economy by no later than 2050. But the truth is... Well, look, uh, it's going to be interesting, right? Republicans have come out with some climate change proposals. Uh, they're more targeted, though, in nature. They're not sweeping like AOC. Uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy says the Republican plans don't kill American jobs or make energy more expensive. So indeed, politically, we're going to now watch and see what kind of political fallout Democrats might get from this. Because, look, folks, the average American obviously going to be concerned with whether their heating bill, for example, is going to go up. And, and like, for example, the carbon tax on greenhouse gas emissions, it would jack up the price of natural gas. That means gas prices would go up. So the list goes on. I want to discuss this and uh, the political news of the day with our First guest, Jonathan Swan, reporter for Axios. Uh, Jonathan, you're a great reporter. Your accent, by the way, even greater. Thanks for being here. 
<laughs> Thanks for having me, Dave. All right. Uh, what's your sense politically on this Biden climate change announcement? How do, how do you think this is going to play out in D.C. and across the country? Well, if you pay attention to the way he's framing it, um, this has gone through a lot of uh, poll testing. And you'll notice that whenever he talks about this issue, it's it's always framed in, in the construct of new jobs, 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 jobs. And in a way, in this sort of new political economic climate that we are now existing in, where um, concerns for deficit and debt have been uh, completely jettisoned, um, and there really isn't a strong, uh, credible Republican argument against basically deficit spending, it's quite possible that you could have, you know, if you spend multi-trillion dollars on anything, you can create a lot of jobs. Um, it, where it gets tricky for Biden politically is actually within his own coalition. It's not so much about Republicans, it's actually within the labor movement. Um, I interviewed the head, the most powerful union leader in the country, Richard Trumka, who runs the AFL-CIO uh, a couple of months ago. And I asked him about Biden's decision, decision to shut down the Keystone pipeline. And Trumka was actually, I was quite surprised how, I mean, he was very, I knew he'd be uncomfortable with the decision, but he was, he openly uh, condemned the decision. And, you know, there are union leaders, particularly in the Labourers International, who've come out against this. This is by no means a dominant union position. There are many, many union leaders who support all of this uh, in terms of the, the green agenda. But there, there are actually very interesting intra-democratic party uh, and uh, left disputes on this issue um, that are worth paying attention to. Well, that's interesting because you mentioned the union aspect of this, which makes me think white working class. It makes me think blue collar, makes me think Rust Belt. And there there are political uh, ramifications here in a negative way for Democrats if they don't play their hand right here. Absolutely. And Biden's uh, very conscious of that. And that's why when he does talk about this issue, it's always framed in this new job. It's, it's never just uh, talking about, I mean, there are many on the left who uh, would actually just rather him talk about this in the in terms of the, the as they would say at the climate emergency and the stakes etc cetera, etc cetera. he does say that but if you notice he always anchors it back to yeah. good paying jobs etc cetera, etc cetera. and that's because of the political risk uh, that this that's attached to this issue. For sure. Hey, Jonathan, you have an article out uh, with one of your co-authors there at Axios. I want to put this up on the screen. This is a big deal. World leaders brace for historic Trump Facebook ban decision. Take us through this independent organization here that's uh, tied in with Facebook. There's very interesting uh, dynamics at play. Yeah, it, it really is, David. And what your viewers should understand is basically what Facebook did is they punted uh, you know, this decision is so, so important. I mean, the, the eyes of the world are on are on Facebook in this decision, but it's not Facebook leadership making this decision. They effectively created, you know, to, to use a sort of uh, analogy that people might find accessible, they basically created their own Supreme Court. It's an independent oversight board. Basically, Zuckerberg saying, you guys figure this out and we'll abide by your overall decision. So. When Trump was kicked off Facebook, this was then taken up, this, this issue was then taken up by, by this um, oversight board. They're going to, we're told they're going to announce their decision fairly soon. We don't know exactly when. And this, this decision has huge, huge stakes. It, it's not just huge stakes for 
you know, all the obvious reasons about, you know, how we um, how, how comfortable we are with these private companies making these types of decisions to de-platform people, particularly world leaders. But also for, for Donald Trump's political future, he's watching this very closely. You know, Facebook was central to his political strategy. It was a huge engine of fundraising for him. And it was a really, they used it in a really powerful way, not just in 2020, but actually back in, in 2016 cycle. So, you know, Trump is thinking seriously about running again uh, in 2024. And what Facebook decides here, or what the board decides, is, is, is going to be important in, in those calculations. Is there any sense at all of which way they might be leaning, Jonathan, at this point? I mean, it's like the Vatican, David. We've been trying to get, um, <laughs> let me tell you, it's like, is very, very closely held. And, you know, if we had that, we, we, we would tell, let me tell you, we would run that story in a heartbeat. But we, we you know, my, particularly my colleague, Sarah Fisher, there's probably not many reporters in the country who are better sourced uh, at Facebook and around Facebook than Sarah Fisher. And if she can't figure it out yet, I, you know, good luck. Right. <laughs> so, but and you, let me tell you, yeah. The Trump folks certainly don't know. They're, they're, but, this is a black box for them. But but here's the worst possible case scenario in this situation. The Facebook Supreme Court, in air quotes, if you will, let's just say for some reason they say, yeah, we want to let Trump back on Facebook. But but Facebook and Zuckerberg, I mean, they don't technically have to adopt those guidelines, right? No, that, that they would let him back on. They the would. global, the, the, the big picture decision, but, but, but where they do have discretion is... The board might say, let him on, but here are our recommendations of, of the guardrails and the conditions upon which he, and Facebook is, it has, has discretion, you know, firstly, Facebook has set this all up themselves. So really, I mean, they can backflip and change what they want, but you know, Zuckerberg can really do whatever he wants. He's, he's running this company. But the fact is the way they've set it up, they, they have said that they will abide by their, their big picture decision. But the fact is, there are so many uh, permutations of this decision uh, and, and conditions that could be attached to it that Facebook would have the discretion not to abide by. Very interesting. Uh, by the way, I've got 30 seconds left. That's all I've got. But on Joe Manchin, I know, Joe Manchin in 30 seconds. Good luck. But everybody, I mean, that's it, right? I mean, it's like, as Joe Manchin goes, so goes America, in a way. He's the most powerful man in the United States Senate, and I don't think anyone could really contest that. He he, he is the veto vote on everything. And, um, you know, the filibuster is the central question. Once we get past infrastructure, whatever this next package looks like, yeah. every single big picture issue will come down to the question of, will Joe Manchin support getting rid of the filibuster? Yeah, that's it. Uh, that, that's the deal. All of it, all of it. Packing the court, all that stuff, they can do it if they just get rid of the legislative filibuster. All right, Jonathan uh, Swan, great to see you, sir. That was great. Did he salute at the end? I love that. That was a salute. Who, who salutes? I love the salute. You know what, Madison? Let's do that on the show. At the end of each block, I'm just going to salute. I'm going to do it now. Back in a moment. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
Welcome to the water cooler. Welcome back. <laughs> Welcome to the water. Hey, it's the top of the show. No, it's not. Welcome back to the water cooler, everybody. Uh, D.C. statehood, uh, it's part of uh, what liberals are doing here. Uh, you know, name your bill, right? You've got uh, the Equality Act, and you've got uh, federalizing elections, H.R. 1. You've got Pack the Supreme Court, and here we are, D.C. statehood passed by the House of Representatives today, uh, not going anywhere in the Senate, at least at this point. Uh, but, but this was an interesting uh, situation that happened on the House floor this morning. A Democrat congressman got up uh, basically arguing that if you're against D.C. statehood, that you're, in essence, racist. Uh, and this is what happened on the House floor. Have a look. Mr. Speaker, I have had enough of my colleagues' racist insinuations that somehow the people of Washington, D.C. are incapable or even unworthy of our democracy. One Senate Republican said that D.C. wouldn't be a, quote, well-rounded, working-class state. I had no idea there were so many syllables in the word white. One of my House Republican colleagues said that D.C. shouldn't be a state because the district doesn't have a landfill. My goodness, with all the racist trash my colleagues have brought to this debate, I can see why they're worried about having a place to put it. The truth is, there is no good faith argument for disenfranchising over 700,000 people, Mr. Speaker, most of whom are people of color. Gentlemen's time was not timely. Mr. Gentlemen's Speaker, point of order. Not timely. The gentleman from New York Mr. will Speaker, proceed. Anyhow, the bottom line is uh, that uh, language by the Democrat congressman was pulled from the record officially. So I guess Republicans got their way, but not before he made an interesting point. I want to bring in Renato Mariotti, a former federal prosecutor, and back here on the water cooler. Uh, Renato, always good to see you, sir. Happy to be here. Well, so so I got to tell you, I guess, you know, he, he went there on, on the racist angle. I, I got to tell you, I'm thinking Republicans are against it, obviously, because this politically hurts that would hurt them deeply. Yeah, I think that's right. It gives two uh, Senate seats to the Democrats. Uh, and, it, you know, that's obviously a state that would be voting Democratic in the, in the foreseeable future. So I can see why there's an obvious partisan disagreement about that point. We had Kevin McCarthy on the show yesterday. He said it was unconstitutional. This is what Republicans are saying. It's unconstitutional that the founders didn't want D.C. to be a state. What's the reaction to something like that? I don't, as a legal argument, I don't think it's particularly strong. I mean, there is a provision in the Constitution for the admission of new states. Uh, if uh, if uh, people, if the Congress passes a statute and the people of that state want to join the union, it, there's really nothing in the Constitution that would prevent it. There obviously is provisions in the Constitution that give Congress direct control over the state, uh, the, essentially the national capital area. And this statute, I, as I understand it, would redefine that to be basically a 10-mile radius. It's changed over time, the size of what our capital is. In fact, it used to be larger. Uh, until we seceded some of it to Virginia. Uh, I, I, uh, I don't really see much uh, in terms of a legal argument there. Yeah, so Renato, I want to move on to the Derek Chauvin trial. I want to ask you a little bit about, you, you've heard the conservative arguments here, uh, when I say the arguments, uh, the, this idea on, on appeal, that he would have a strong appeal. Even the judge uh, has said that he'll have a strong 
appeal potentially on what Maxine Waters and even Joe Biden said. What, what's your take on the appeal process here? Well, I'll tell you, as somebody who not only was a federal prosecutor for a long time, but now I'm on the defense side, that it's very hard to overturn a jury verdict on appeal. And you can understand why that is. Our courts really want to uh, uphold uh, jury verdicts because we can't keep doing trials over and over again uh, for people. It's a very costly process, as anyone who watched this trial could tell, just the sheer amount of effort and resources that went into it. So. Uh, the, the standards on appeal are very, very weighted in favor of holding the verdict. So I would be very surprised if any challenge to this trial uh, was successful. Uh, you know, and I don't really, I mean, there are some issues that are better than others here, but um, there are deferential standards uh, that defer to the decisions that made at the trial and look at the evidence in the light most favorable to the verdict and so on and so forth. So I would be very surprised at that. How is it weighted? I'm curious. Like, what, like why is it so hard to get an appeal uh, over, overturned or yeah, have it overturned? Mm -hmm. Sure. Sure. So first of all, for example, when the judge makes rulings, they, the standard that, that will be uh, used by the Court of Appeals often will be something like an abusive discretion standard, so that this way they will defer to the judgment of the trial judge. They will defer to the factual uh, judgments that a trial judge made in terms of the demeanor or making judgments about how to run his courtroom. They will then have, they have there's something called the harmless error doctrine, where if there was an error, then they'll look at the weight of the evidence and say, well, there's so much evidence against this guy that this particular defect in the trial ultimately didn't matter, didn't affect the outcome. They have all these things that they do at the appellate level to make sure that if they're going to put through a bunch of jurors through the process of having a trial again and judicial system through that, uh, that there's a very good reason. Is it hard to get true justice in a case like this? Uh, or I, let me rephrase that, uh, a fair trial. Uh, but trust me, look, I'm, not, I'm no Derek Chauvin fan for sure, and I'm glad he's behind bars and behind bars for a very long time. But, but, but in a situation like that, everybody knows, everybody's seen the video. I mean, it's, you know, you try to, how hard is it to kind of taint the jury pool at that point? And, and you know, isn't that, isn't that hard for, for someone to be in that situation? I think it's often the case uh, when there are high-profile cases that it's more challenging to choose a jury. I think it's even more challenging when the defendant is a celebrity or mm -hmm. people have strong opinions about the person. You can imagine a trial of, let's say, former President Trump or you know something like that. It's just it can be very difficult, right, to weed through people's feelings. I do think a jury, when they are forced to go through the process of looking at the evidence, do look at do look at the evidence in a, in, a, in a reasonably fair way. Obviously, no trial is perfect. Our system isn't perfect. But I do think that the system generally arrives at good results uh, as a, for the most part. And here, there's a lot of evidence. I mean, the reason that this case got so much attention is because the video is what it is. And I, I don't think you need to be a great lawyer to throw that video in front of a jury and, and get a conviction on something, given how famous that it was. Yeah, for sure. Renato Mariotti, really appreciate you, former federal prosecutor. Thanks for coming on the show again. Thank you. All right, uh, Renato, uh, we, we enjoy his perspective. Once again, uh, uh, not, not a conservative. Uh, he'll be the first to admit it, uh, and that's a good thing. And why is it a good thing? Because here on the water cooler, we want both sides of the argument, kind of put it out there. We've had Alan Dershowitz on. Actually, he's not a conservative either. But anyhow, he disagreed with Renato back in the morning.
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back to the water cooler, everybody. Hey, if, uh, if, if we decided to just throw on the uh, liberal uh, view of this uh, show, we would say, hey, did you know that uh, America has a problem with systemic racism? That's what you're going to hear on MSNBC every single uh, day of the week. I'm sorry, every single hour of every single day of the week. Uh, and, and here's an op-ed that caught my eye uh, in just the last day or so, uh, put out by Quinn Hillier. Uh, no, Mr. President, the soul of America isn't racist. This is what he says in part. Today's racism, in other words, is absolutely not systemic or institutional. This remains true, even though many inequities and social ills are surely rooted in the institutional racial discrimination that quite hideously existed in the past. But inequities are not racism, even if they begin due to racism. To say otherwise, as Biden does, is to misstate the problem and thus leads to wrongheaded attempts at solutions. And with that, what a wonderful transition, because Quinn Hillier is here, senior commentator, writer, commentary writer, excuse me, and editor, Washington Examiner. Uh, Quinn, great to see you, sir. Good to see you, David. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's an important op-ed. I hope people read it. Uh, once again, Washington Examiner, uh, talk to us about uh, this overall. You have statistics that really kind of bear this out, and, and there's a lot that goes into this. Why don't you take us through it? Well, first of all, uh, before we get to the statistics, let's talk about definitions. Yeah. To say that there is systemic or institutional racism means that the systems or institutions themselves are have racist aspects, are designed to be racist or deliberately racist, something like that. And that is just patently, obviously not the case in America today. Every instrument of government and just about every major cultural institution is not only no longer racist, but actively anti-racist. They have laws, they have rules, they have procedures that all guard against racism. And in many cases, they even go beyond that. They are aggressively counter-racist to the point of, of, you know, favoring certain races over the other in order to make up for past institutional racism. So the institutions and systems are not racist. So it is, it is a misnomer to say that we have systemic or institutional racism. If you want to say we have widespread racism, that's different. That means you still have way too many individuals in America who are racist. That is a legitimate argument to make. But to say that the systems and institutions still need to have government come in and with the heavy hand of government, fix the systems or the institutions, that makes no sense. That's already been done. You mentioned something just now. You said uh, they're not designed to be racist. And and I can see a liberal hearing that and saying, well, wait a minute. Of course they were designed to be racist because a bunch of white founding fathers and yada, yada, yada. And here we go with the founding fathers and slaves and all of that. And uh, what's your reaction to the fact that that this white privilege uh, situation, all of this, you know, they they believe that the, 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 the game is rigged, that it's all been stacked against 
uh, African Americans? Well, you can make a legitimate case that the lingering effects of horrendous racism, of slavery, of Jim Crow, et cetera, et cetera, has still uh, meant that on average, uh, black Americans start behind most white Americans. That's taking everything in the aggregate. Mm -hmm. That is a legitimate argument to make. That's different from saying that the system is now rigged against black Americans or that the institutions are rigged against black Americans. It is a different thing to say that the systems are rigged than to say that histor that, that, that the history has started them behind for reasons that are unacceptable. But then again, lots of immigrants came in starting way behind. The system is now such that that everybody plays on at least an equal playing field. The systems now work. That doesn't mean there's not some catching up to do, but the catching up is not the fault of the system. So do you, do you believe liberals really buy all of this, or is this just a, a political attempt to, to kind of gin up the base, play the race card, do whatever they need to do to win the next election? Uh, with them, it's about power. And mm -hmm. if they can say that it is a systemic and institutional problem, it means that it's so big that only government can fix it. And of course, the fixes are all going to be ones that advance other liberal or progressive or even radical policy goals. And so under the umbrella of fixing systemic racism, they try to push in all this other ideological stuff and all these policies that are harshly leftward ideologically. And so, you know, everybody's against racism. So the more that they can claim is tied in with racism, the more they can they can shoehorn their other stuff in there. Yeah. And so a lot of them know exactly what they're doing, and it's a very cynical ploy. For sure. As we wrap up here, Joe Biden, talk about systemic racism. Joe Biden's been around for, what, almost 50 years in the Senate. What did he do? I mean, if there was systemic racism, where was he on the front lines of this battle? Well, look, I, I think it was unfair when Kamala Harris, during the debates, uh, when she was running against him, basically accused him of being racist for pushing the, for instance, the 1994 crime bill. As a matter of fact, the 1994 crime bill was a remarkable, overall, a remarkably successful bill. Uh, and now, now the left is saying that that bill itself was part of what is now institutional racism. Well, if Biden is going to say that there is systemic or institutional racism, then he has to own up to being wrong in the 94 bill. The problem is he was not wrong in the 94 bill. The bill was not racist. It actually saved tens of thousands of black lives by taking black murderers off the streets. Yeah, for sure. Well, and he tried to kind of have it both ways a little bit during the debate. Oh, that's what Joe Biden does is try to have things both ways. <laughs> that's right. Quinn Hillier, really appreciate it. I'd love to get you back on. Lots of different topics you write about. Thanks, Thanks so much. Thanks, David. I really appreciate it. All right. Uh, Quinn Hillier here uh, with the Washington Examiner. Great, great piece. Look it up. Just type in Quinn Hillier, systemic racism. You type it on Google. Madison apparently told me the other day there's something called Google. And so I went to it and I was like, oh, this is really cool. 
coming up next, Pastor Brian Gibson, founder of Peaceably Gather. We know him, he's on the show all the time. Evangelicals and the vaccine, back in a moment. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome back to the water cooler, everybody. So have you gotten the shot? The vaccine? You're not getting the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. <laughs> Google it. Uh, but Moderna, Pfizer, are you getting it? What's the deal? Evangelicals, yeah, there are a lot of evangelicals getting it. But at the same time, there are quite a few that are not getting it. And as a matter of fact, if you look at the polling, it shows that evangelicals actually are the biggest kind of subgroup, if you will, that are saying, no, I think I'm good. Uh, with uh, the devil's juice. Just kidding. <laughs> just a little joke. Hey, don't send me emails about the devil's juice. I'm just playing around. All right. Uh, Pastor Brian Gibson, <laughs> founder of Peaceably Gather, uh, joins us uh, here. Uh, Pastor, great to see you, sir. Hey, it's good good to be with you, David. And uh, yeah, I think, I think the evangelical church is uh, divided on the issue of the vaccination. And it's not that we're we're largely anti-vaxxers. I mean, my, my children have received vaccinations. I've received vaccinations, but I think we wanna know exactly what is in this vaccination. Uh, as you know, uh, many evangelicals, if you're really evangelical, you're, you're pro-life. Mm -hmm. I don't believe there's such a thing as a pro-choice evangelical. They'll say they are. I don't think there's such a thing as a pro-choice Christian. So I think you gotta be for life to be in, in the kingdom of light. Uh, but we'll say this, several of these vaccinations uh, have fetal cell lines in them. They'll tell you they, they aren't a product of an abortion, but they are. It's just that the aborted baby uh, died in the 80s and they keep replicating it again and again in a Petri dish. So it's a Frankenstein type uh, embryonic tissue is what it is. So I think that's concerning for many evangelicals. They have that concern. Now, all of the vaccines do not contain that. Some do not. Uh, but then those are the mRNA. And again, I'm not a doctor. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pastor. Uh, the vaccinations that aren't tested, they're only approved for emergency use only by the FDA. And right now we're signing up to be a generation of lab rats. We really don't know what's going to happen. And we already have seen some of the problems like with the Johnson & Johnson shot, the blood clotting. Uh, I think there's quite a few people, you you won't hear it on the on the a regular media, but you can look up and see some of the reactions people are having. They're yep. posting on social media, even deaths, quite a few deaths that aren't being widely reported. So why would you sign up this early for something that most of humanity overcomes with just a therapeutic? It, it, is the risk worth the reward? See, see, I think you're onto something when you said we're a generation of lab rats, because here, here's the deal. Um, I think the major issue uh, and it's not just evangelicals, it's other people too, but when it comes to evangelicals, they don't trust scientists. It's not that they don't trust some science out there. I'm not saying they don't trust certain certain parts of the scientific uh, experiment, if you will, but they don't trust scientists, they don't trust government, and now all of a sudden you got Fauci and the government telling you three feet, six feet, redfish, bluefish, you don't know what they're saying, and now Johnson & Johnson now pulls the vaccine. I mean, look, they got a lot of distrust out there. 
Yeah, it's not that we don't trust science. It's that we don't trust who's paying the scientists. Right. So just because somebody's a scientist, all of a sudden people think, well, they're they're these uh, good, noble, altruistic people that would never lie for the sake of a dollar. Well, there's going to be good scientists and bad scientists, just like any other trade out there. And I'm sorry, men and women can be bought and sold. Goes all the way back to the story of Judas in the gospel for us. We know that a lot of people will sell their souls for 30 pieces of silver. So the only way you know what's what when they keep changing their story is the test of time, right? So we have many vaccinations. Now we'll all take because they've stood the test of time. We'll take an aspirin. It stood the test of time. But don't unroll something uh, just overnight and then villainize a group of people because they don't trust it. We're talking about the same America that had the, uh, what was it, the the Tuskegee syphilis trials. Um, We have done some terrible things as a nation, medically. And people that have studied history, they know that. And and so we're looking, could this be that? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Time will tell. Yeah, and and there's going to be a lot of evangelicals saying, hey, look, I'm good with the 99.25% survival rate. So, uh, yeah, I'm good with that. Um, Hey, I want to, I I saw this clip on on Twitter of you preaching, and I was like, well, first of all, I said, bring it. Uh, And and, and then I said, come on. Uh, And then I said, I knew I was going to have you today, so we want to play it and get your reaction on the other side. Here, Here it is. You know how we have in America? Because the church stood up against tyranny. You know the only way we'll keep America? It'll be men and women full of the Spirit of God that'll stand up against tyranny. What I want to know is who will stand up against tyranny for America. What I want to know is who will boldly prophesy. What I want to know is who will not be afraid. What I want to know is who isn't scared. What I want to know is who will not love their life even unto death. What I want to know is there's still a roughed out man in America that'll stand up for what's right, stand for righteousness and against wickedness. That's what we need in America right now. That's what I'm, t- oh, that's what I'm talking about. All right, so, hey, so, yeah, who's going to stand up uh, tyranny as in vaccine papers and all that type of stuff? Yeah, we're, we're coming to a time, um, David, where it, it looks like more control is being ushered into the hands of the government than there's ever been mm-hmm. in America. And the reason we have in America is because men in the pulpit stood up and spoke against uh, Britain and, and British oppression. Well, I've talked about it many times. They're the Black Robe Regiment. They said enough is enough, and they began preaching against these things. They inspired a generation that brought us the Constitution and brought us 1776. Now, here's the problem right now with the church in America. Uh, we've become afraid. Our, our men and women in the pulpits are afraid of cancel culture. They're afraid of government. They're afraid of losing their tax exempt status or something like that. What I'm afraid of is standing before God and not hearing, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So listen, I think it's time that we in the church stand up and speak against these issues that are destroying us right now. We're being played like a fiddle with the race card. Uh, right now, That there, there's um, sexual issues that are becoming, uh, being elevated to being the most important thing that we have in our nation. Our children's education are being dumbed down. We pulled God out of everything. And all a lot of our pastors care about are their likes on Instagram 
instead of the truth of the word of God. So I'm looking for, for the men to, the men of God to be the men of God and to speak out even when it's uncomfortable. Jesus promised us persecution. Paul told Timothy, endure hardness as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. That's what it takes to save a nation. It's going to take some people of God being tough again. Pastor Brian Gibson, uh, part of the new Black Robe Regiment, founder of Peace of Lee Gather. Thank you, Pastor Gibson. Great stuff. Thank you, David. All right. Uh, and he's right. And look, uh, here's the problem. Uh, we are a bunch of followers. Uh, evangelicals uh, have, have gotten into this. They're a bunch of followers. Uh, we, overall, the human condition is we, we follow. We want to be liked. Uh, we want to, you know, just kind of groupthink the whole thing. But, you know, in evangelical world, what he's talking about is that we, as an evangelicals, play to an audience of one, God. We don't play to an audience of Don Lemon. Back in a moment. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Welcome back to the wonderful everybody. I don't have a mug. It's a, it's a tough economy. Uh, time for the last the last sip. Anyhow, uh, all right. <laughs> I'm already laughing because it's kind of funny video we're about to play. I think it's funny. Um, well, you know what? Why don't we just this is called a uh, is this a recital, Madison? What is this? Is this a recital? It's it's a concert. Thank you, Madison. Miss Highbrow concert. Okay, it's a concert, and it kind of <laughs> it kind of went wrong. Have a have a look. Funny stuff. I'm sorry. She's fine. I don't know if she's fine. She's fine. <laughs> I like how the guy reacts like, oh gosh, now what do I do? Do I keep playing? Do I attend to her? And he just kind of freezes. Oh, that's funny. Now, why do we play that on the lot? You're just saying, are you, what are you doing? Why are you playing that? Here's why we're going to now explain how this has political ramifications. I'm going to now do an analogy. I want to replay this video now. The, the guy doing the, the what, is the, what is he playing? The drum? The bass drum, thank you. Uh, he's playing the bass drum. I want you to think of him as the Democrat. Just HR1, Equality Act, pack the courts, whatever. Uh, and then the woman is a conservative. There you have it, the conservative exit stage right. Because conservative, what kind of drum is it? A timpani? A timpani? I don't even know what I'm saying. I'm saying this live in the air. Look it up. I'm sorry. If I get the drum wrong, email me at thewatercooler at justthenews.com. Well, I know, Madison, you don't like when I give out the email because you're like, oh, my gosh. Thewatercooler at justthenews.com. I like to say that in a New York accent, so here it is. Thewatercooler at justthenews.com. So that's the deal. Right? Democrats keep beating the drum, liberal agenda, liberal agenda, and the conservative beating up.
thrown off the stage. The question becomes, for many conservatives across the country, will they come back with their own baton or whatever that thing is uh, in the hand, the mallet in the hand, and come back in 2022? We had Kevin McCarthy on the other day who says they're coming back with a mallet. Back in a moment. Welcome back to the Water Cooler, everybody. End of the show. Got to get to Joe Weber. And Joe, uh, from Just the News, by the way, I don't want you to take this the wrong way. Just because you're at the end of the show doesn't mean you're first on our heart. You are first on our heart, Joe. Thank you, David. <laughs> you sound overwhelmed mm-hmm. emotionally. Well, I knew that all along. <laughs> all right. What's going on over justthenews.com? If I went to justthenews.com, what sort of uh, stories am I going to see over there? couple things real quick. Obviously, I think maybe as a lot of your uh, viewers already know, a little bit of breaking news here. The House has expected passed these D.C. statehood bill 216 to 208 along party lines. This was expected. Now it goes to the Senate <clears throat> where it's going to have a difficult time. They don't even have the 50 votes. Angus King, who is a main independent who caucuses with Democrats, he's been telling reporters all week. I, you know, I got other things that I'm really sort of uh, top priority. And Joe Manchin, the moderate Democrat from West Virginia, he says he's not sure. One of the things I find really interesting about all this is that uh, Dem- Republicans are t- suggesting that this is a Democratic power play to obviously get more votes. Uh, and whether you agree with that or not, I can tell you, and you know, from being around Washington, um, this really isn't a grassroots effort by residents. You just don't hear it or don't see it, or I don't, you tell me. It uh, doesn't appear as if this is something that the residents have you know, wanted. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting town, which many people come here to serve in the federal government. They're interesting at sometimes in their home politics and maybe, you know, ward politics here, which is very interesting about their tax, local tax rates and stuff like this. But I'm just not seeing it around here, around the residents, which are largely Democratic, pushing for this thing to happen. No, I, I, no, I, I don't really see it. Obviously, I've, I've lived here 20 plus years. I see the old taxation without representation place. But, we, you know, that what does that really say exactly? I mean, you see them all, all over. It's part of the plate, obviously. But uh, well, the license, yeah, I was I'm going to do a throwback for you. Do you remember Mark Plotkin, who was a, a pundit in this town? He was a single single issue man. That's all he lived for. Unfortunately, he's not here with us now. But I'm sure that, uh, you know, this yeah. would probably be a day for him. Right. Yeah. For, for sure. Joe Weber, really appreciate it. And thank you for the Mark Plotkin uh, reference. Uh, Plotkin reference. Thank you. I knew you'd appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Joe. Thank you so much. Joe Weber uh, here on the water cooler. Uh, well, that does it for us. However, let me just let me just say this straight up. OK, uh, Madison, you know, Madison, uh, she doesn't have a last name. She's like Oprah. Uh, she is the producer of this show. Well, guess what? She has a mother and her mother has a birthday today. So happy birthday. Nancy, that's it. It's like Madison and Nancy. There are no last names. Uh, Anyhow, real big uh, happy birthday to Nancy. Uh, Just a swell, swell person. Uh, I I can tell you that firsthand. Anyhow, really uh, excited about that. She's excited about that. See you tomorrow.